Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode three of Atomic Habits. And our hero, James, um, introduced on episode one some strategic thoughts about habits and how, you know, there's ultimately everybody cares about the goals, but the goals are so far down the path that like, I mean, we can't almost can't even control them. All we can control are the actions that we do. But then even a crazier concept that like, if you want to take it one step further, become the type of person who does the activities, you know, become, hey, I'm, I'm not a smoker. Even if you smoke for 10 years, I'm a runner, you know, even if you've never ran before. And he walked into then the, the model of habits, which is the cue. So something in the world gives you a cue that it causes a craving, which is like either a desire for something to stop or desire for something. You do a response, so you do the thing. Maybe it's taking a smoke, maybe it's you know taking a drink, I don't know. And then you have the reward, which is, oh, I'm less anxious now. And so um, overlaid on that, he built us a model, an operating system for how to uh, use and build the system of atomic habits to get whatever you want in life. And so we're going into the first law. The first law is make it obvious. And so, again, this relates to the cue. And so we're, for a positive habit, if we're trying to trying to understand how to build a positive habit, you know, the, the first step of a habit is the cue. So you want to make the cue of a positive habit as obvious as possible. That's his first rule. The psychologist Gary Klein once told me a story about a woman who attended a family gathering. She had spent years working as a paramedic, and upon arriving at the event, took one look at her father-in-law and got very concerned and she's like hey i don't i don't like the way you look and her father-in-law is like i don't like the way you look either bitch and she's like no dude fucking relax you need to go to the hospital right now a few hours later the man was undergoing life-saving surgery after an examination had revealed he had a blockage to a major artery and was at immediate risk of a heart attack after many years of working with people with heart failure the woman had unknowingly developed the, the ability to recognize this pattern on sight. She couldn't explain what was wrong, but she noticed her father-in-law's face just didn't look right. She knew something was wrong. And dude, my wife told me this crazy story. She uh, worked slash works as a vet tech, um, and she said that there was a, a dog that was having a stroke or, or didn't know what was going on, but the, the, the lady who brought the dog in was a hospice nurse, so like um, a nurse for you know, really old people in nursing homes, basically. And the, the lady's like, hey, my dog has stroke breath. And Pascal's like, what? And she's like, yeah, you know, when people have a stroke, you they get stroke breath. And so now my wife, she can smell a stroke, which is a crazy thing. Like who could have thought that that was possible? We underestimate how much our brains and bodies can do without thinking. You do not tell your hair to grow, your heart to pump, your lungs to breathe, your dick to get what, 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 your stomach to digest, and your body handles all this and more on autopilot. You are much more 
than your conscious self. So think about hunger. Your body is a variety of feedback loops that gradually alert you when it is time to eat again and that track what is going on around you and within you. Cravings can arise thanks to hormones and chemicals circulating in your body. Suddenly, you're hungry, even though you're not quite sure what tipped you off. And, and so, dude, I was watching Hulu last night. There's commercials. It kind of sucks, but like it also, I don't mind the commercials that much because there's like, I forgot that there's like a break between the show. So like, you don't have to pay as much rapt attention. But anyway, mostly still hate the commercials, but there was a Burger King commercial. And I was like, not hungry, not hungry, not paying attention. And then Burger King. And I was like, mm, I'm hungry. This is one of the most surprising insights about our habits. You don't need to be aware of the cue for a habit to begin. You can notice an opportunity and take action without dedicating conscious attention to it. And so if he's thinking about like, he's a big like environmental design person. So like if you're setting up your environment, he's saying you can trigger a habit unconsciously even like not even trying to oh god i'm trying to get hungry like wait burger king commercial on hulu like w am i really that different physiologically one second after seeing that commercial versus one second before no but he's saying if you're trying to build a good habit and we're trying to make it easy it's good to know that like you don't even have to consciously think a lot of this stuff like set up your environment so that unconsciously you do the habits you need that's what makes habits useful, but that's also what makes them dangerous. As habits form, your actions come under the direction of your automatic and non-conscious mind. So my uh, my uncle, not Uncle Steve, other uncle, he um, is a successful business guy and he's an, a, an appraiser. And so when he was uh, raising his daughters, he's got three daughters and he was, you know, like at a business lunch with one of his coworkers or with a prospect or something. And he got so used to saying, hey, do you need to go potty to uh, his daughters? He was like, hey, you know, I, I'm going to go potty. I'll be right back. And then then he's like, fuck, because he couldn't even play it off because it was like so obviously not said it said as a joke. And, you know, he just kind of had to probably like, mm, never mind. Sorry, getting a little sick. And then just like try to move on the meeting over time, though. The cues that spark our habits become so common that they are essentially invisible. So like all you know is that you find yourself drinking beer every night, but you don't realize that like three or four of those nights, it's because you're stressed at work, you're driving back, you drive by the bar. A couple of those nights, it's because you had a stressful week and you know, you turn on Netflix and you watch a movie and then you're going to go to bed and then you start drinking. And so like it, the, the cues become so common that they just assimilate into our brain and we don't we're, we're not consciously able to recognize like oh i'm being cued by all this stuff it just feels like i like drinking which in some ways is true but he's saying like the treats on the kitchen counter the remote control next to the couch the phone in our pocket our responses to these cues are so deeply encoded that it may feel like the urge to act comes from nowhere for this reason we must begin the process of behavior change with awareness so, you know, take an inventory, like think about like, okay, well, why? Like for me, I was struggling to consistently shoot my boat. Now I would do it, but I was like going through the motions based on just total discipline and it was fucking terrible. And I was like, why? I'm like, oh, okay. It's because I don't have a structure. And so then I was like, okay, now I'm built. Now I just built the plan. And then now it's like 
takes 5% the mental energy because it's just like, oh, okay, it's Tuesday. What am I doing tonight? I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to this, this dinner. I'm going to see a friend. And then like, I just need to make sure to somehow, sh- you know, somewhere shoot bows today. The Japanese railway system is regarded as one of the best in the world. If you ever find yourself riding a train in Tokyo, you notice that the conductors have a peculiar habit. None of them wear pants. What, 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 what? As each operator runs the train, they proceed through a ritual of pointing at different objects and calling out a command. Before the train departs, staff members will point along the edge of the platform and declare, all clear. Every detail is identified, pointed at, and named aloud. This process, known as pointing and calling, is a safety system designed to reduce mistakes. And so, um, imagine if you lose your keys all the time. If you set up a process where you, every time you leave the house or you get home, you have a pla- a jar you put your keys in, and you put your keys in there, and then you say, keys in the jar. Pretty sure you'll never fucking lose your keys again. You know, if I really need to remember something, I'll put it in my shoes, because I'm going to go put my shoes on, and I'm like, what the fuck is, oh, okay, well, hey, I need to remember that. Pointing and calling is so effective because it raises the level of awareness from a non-conscious habit to a more conscious level. Because the train operators must use their eyes, hands, mouth, and ears, they are more likely to notice problems before something goes wrong. And this is wild, but like two examples recently, um, you know, the, the wife loves to nap, okay? And, and she's like, I never have enough time. I'm like, I just don't bring up that, hey, if you didn't nap for an hour and a half a day, like you'd have time. But that's forbidden to bring up. And so I just now am very supportive and she naps and I just make sure she's like has enough darkness and whatever because sometimes I'll just clomp around with all the lights on. And um, our bathroom, the sun will reflect off the mirror and reflect off the other mirror. And so if that bathroom door is not totally closed, it's like a halo of light on her face. And so I was trying to be, be caring and nice and she's fucking napping in the middle of the day. And I'm like you know, my job is like, I've got a leather belt and they're like, Hey, if you can chew through this belt in nine months, we'll give you a million dollars. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, I'm just coming after like a three hour belt chewing session. And I I walk in, I'm like, Oh great. Napping again. All good. Hey, I support her. So I go and I try to, you know, instead of closing the door though, I'm like automatic, not really paying attention. And I turn on the light switch and I realize I'm like, I just tried to turn off the sun with the light switch. Fucking idiot. Uh, another example, same thing. I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna make her food because I'm like such a good husband. I'm gonna be so nice. But then I'm like kind of forgot and like mixed the process of quickly making a chicken sandwich and like making her <laughs> like uh, fucking food. I don't know. And I ended up just bringing her like a, a ketchup cheese sandwich. And she's like, what is this? I'm like, uh, I don't know, my bad. And so all of that to say, we have these automatic habits that are just happening, but sometimes bringing them to the conscious mind is important and needed. And so he does kind of like a discovery exercise with us, uh, uh, you know, like a good consultant would do of like, hey, you know, let's, let's map out your current habits. Like you're doing all this stuff, you probably don't even have awareness, but I'll summarize and say, use your fucking mind. Okay, I'm not going to map all that shit out. But the concepts that we've talked about, think about them. Great. Okay, so we're still in this making it obvious concept. Um, And and that's like the strategic thing we're trying to do. But now he's going to go into a little bit of tactical like, hey, 
what's the best way to build a new habit? So there were some researchers somewhere who were trying to figure out how to get people to exercise. And so they did three groups of people. Uh, First group, they were just like, hey, do it. The second group, they were like, do it and read motivational stuff. The third, they were like, do it and read motivational stuff and build the plan. 91% of the third group exercised. So that's the doing, that's the building the plan group. And so he, he gets a little bit fucking crazy here and calls it like implementation intention. But like the, the summary is, like, hey, if you're really trying to achieve an outcome, like it makes sense to think about what what are the cues like if if i'm gonna have to do a lot of these habits how do i make sure that i'm gonna do them and so like actually after reading this book i have these weekly metrics that i have to do and i've got a i've got a accountability bet with my wife where if i don't do them and they're like reasonable but hardcore and if if i don't do them i will buy her a gift and and she and i've got on my whiteboard i've got you know like check boxes for the metrics and she knows now and so she'll come in and i and i point at the whiteboard i'm like hey what's that and she's like no present and i'm like that's fucking right but she's like so excited that if i fail she's gonna get a present um but the summary is like that's an example if i realize that hey man it's really it's really important for me to go through my pipeline which is every single lead and every single opportunity in my pipeline two times a week okay that's hard as fuck. That's like, if you just ignore that, it'll not get done. And so I've had to structure my environment, which is checkbox on the whiteboard where like, I'm continually seeing that getting reinforced. And then like, if I don't have anything to do, but that is something that I haven't done that week yet. I'm like, okay, cool. Let, I'll start chipping away at that. And so that's what he's talking about. Um, and when we're thinking about building that plan, the cues that can trigger a habit can come in a wide range of forms. Maybe it's your phone buzzing in your pocket. You know, maybe the reason that you're not doing what you're supposed to do is because you're getting distracted by Twitter or whatever. Maybe it's the smell of chocolate chip cookies, the sound of ambulance sirens. But the two most common cues are time and location. And so if we're thinking about, okay, I have this goal. I got to, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to become the type of person that can do this. But part of doing that is I need all this evidence that I'm doing it. And so I need to like actually do the shit. And so it makes sense to think about how do I structure my environment in a way that like most maximizes the positive habits I'm going to need to do. And so if I'm thinking about those cues, there's two things that are most common of, of cues and that is time. So maybe there's a certain time of day. Maybe, you know, like for me after seven at night, I'm basically doing fucking nothing on purpose, but also like I'm just doing fucking nothing. And so that's time. And then maybe location. And you know what also is like a, a, a big contributor to me after seven doing nothing? If I'm laying on the couch. So like if I still have shit to do, I will not lay on the couch because bitch, I'm going to start fucking having that cue of hmm, location, couch, time. Uh, what is time? Let's do nothing. So many people think they lack motivation, but they what they really lack is clarity. Now I will, I will again say that if you are if you are committed, like if you're saying, "Hey, I will I will die before I fail at this," like a lot of this stuff takes care of itself. But if you just are saying, "Like, hey, I want to read a little bit more," but you don't have any sort of fucking plan, like you don't have set up a chair and this is your reading chair, and then you build the habit to read in the damn chair. If you just say you want to read more, like yeah, it's no surprise that if you tell anybody, "Hey, I want you to add." 
15 unclear and somewhat painful activities to your week and you know just like pick whenever's convenient and you know and do them like you'll never fucking do them but if you're scheduled if you build a time if you're like hey on this day i'm gonna get up 30 minutes earlier so i can read then it doesn't even feel like a thing because like you know you get anywhere from six to nine hours of sleep a night depending on the variation of your life and so like you just if you one day you get 6.7 hours of sleep well it's the same as you were normally going to do, but now all of a sudden you got up earlier and you're you're reading or whatever. Um, and and again, James loves name and shit, and I get triggered by it. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna breeze through this, but he's he's saying that so so if we're thinking about setting up the plan, you know, and, and we're we need to maximize the cue. He he talks about something called habit stacking. And again, my fucking bias is like just do it, goddamn it. But Habit stacking is, are there specific habits that you're already doing that you can combine with the new habit that you want? So let's say you're shitting every day, but you don't wash your hands and you're trying to be healthier. Well, hey, how about every time you shit, you wash your hands? You know, it doesn't even feel like, it, it feels like the thing is now shitting and washing your hands, not just shitting. You know, let's say you want to get better at dry, at, at dry firing but and you work out, you know, five days a week. Well, could you could you shorten five minutes off your workout, add 10 minutes to the workout, and then now you dry fire for 15 minutes during your workout, and that's 15 minutes, five days a week. And all of a sudden, it feels like you're just working out. It's the same habit, but now you're also actually dry firing like a fucking shitload compared to normal humans, hypothetically. Not, not saying, not saying I didn't. And he's saying, you know, a lot of a lot of like humans are weird and we're irrational and a lot of behaviors actually follow this cycle of things getting stacked together and so um he brings up something called the Diderot paradox where i don't even fucking know like some artist guy Diderot. he got a really nice he sold a painting made some money he bought a really nice robe but before he was like living in poverty and it was cool because everything was poverty then he got this like expensive ass robe and he's like man I probably need a nice ass rug too. I probably need a nice ass chair too. Then he spent all his money. And so human behaviors follow the cycle a lot. It's a chain reaction. You know, going to the bathroom leads to washing and drying your, it leads to washing your hands and then drying your hands, which reminds you, you need to put dirty towels in the laundry. So you add laundry detergent to the shopping list and so on. You know, like a lot of these things stack. And so knowing that, like if you're trying to set up the plan to become a Kusemono, like, mm, okay, well, hey, I'm already eating. So how about every day when I eat breakfast, I'll read or, or whatever. One of the best ways to build a new habit is to identify a current habit you already do each day and then stack your new behavior on that. So it's rather than pairing your new habit with a particular time and location, you pair it with a current habit. And so again, like as he's thinking about this, like ultimately, bitch, you just need to do the shit. But maybe you want to try to do the shit by saying, hey, at this time in this location so i'm going to get up 30 minutes earlier and i'm going to read in my reading chair so maybe you're using time and location maybe you already sit on the bus and you just are on TikTok. and so he's saying you could also stack the habit of reading with the habit that already exists of being on the bus and, and instead of TikTok, you just read you know it's going for a run and listening to audiobooks so all that shit makes sense and so the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious these strategies we've talked about are among the most practical ways to create obvious cues for your habits and design a clear plan for when and where to take action. And so going further into design, going further into 
figuring out how to set up the environment and the system where you just plug your corpse into and then you have massive output and you, and you really don't even feel like you're doing a lot of motivation. Title, motivation is overrated, environment often matters more. And again, I'm of the belief you got to have a shitload of fucking discipline. Who gives a shit? But, you know, some of this is helping you out. Like you can still have the same amount of discipline, but your environment's easier to be in and then you'll be more successful. Ann Thorndike, a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, had a crazy idea. So, you know, they're at a hospital, giant hospital. They've got a cafeteria. Okay, everybody's eating lunch at the cafeteria, mostly. I'd probably bring my lunch because I'm cheap. But they were like, hey, we noticed not that many people are drinking water or, you know, buying bottled water, but they're always, you know, buying sodas, buying coffees. So what if we just rearrange the environment and let's just track the sales? And so they just laid out the waters differently and people bought more water and they bought less bad food. And it's like, fuck, dude, humans are just, dude, we're just dogs with beards growing all over. You know, people often choose products not because of what they are, but because of where they are. You know, if you go to a friend's house and they've got like a nice vegetarian meal and, you know, a, uh, you know, like a big glass of bubbly water and you eat it and you feel kind of full and then you go and you're hanging out with your friend, like that environment's so different that you might not even be that hungry. But if you're at home and you're typically used to smash in White Castle and then you try to eat some fucking vegetarian meal, like, but you're gonna be so damn hungry. And so environment is the invisible hand that shapes behavior. Despite our unique personalities, certain behaviors tend to arise again and again under certain environmental conditions. So for me, I've always struggled to take vitamins and supplements. Uh, you know, now, if, if they actually ever fucking made me more jacked, I wouldn't struggle to take them. But like, you know, well, I'm going to take some fish oil because I don't know, because it's supposed to be good. I'm going to take a multivitamin for the same reason. And so it was always like, okay, cool. I would do it for a little bit. But then, and, and creatine even. Like, I don't, dude, I found no benefit ever for creatine. But I just, you know, take it in the same way that people take communion at church. Like, hey, I'm pretty sure I'm blessed now. And so, but I, but it was like, and very struggle. I struggled a lot to, to do that. And so I, I, what I did was I've now put the, the vitamins in my gym and I will take them during my workout. And then I put, I drink out of a gallon, just continuously like a, like a human horse trough. And I'll put uh, a scoop of creatine every time I refill the gallon with crystal light. And so I'm effectively like taking all my supplements, drinking creatine, and it doesn't even feel like it. The more obviously available a product or service is, the more likely you are to try it. Every habit is initiated by a cue, and we are more likely to notice cues that stand out. You know, sometimes I will still forget my, uh, vitamins during the workout because i just like won't look at it but you know four out of five days i'll look at it and i'm like oh i better take my multivitamin probably doesn't even work but who fucking cares if you want to make a habit a big part of your life make the cue a big part of your environment the most persistent behaviors usually have multiple cues consider how many different ways a smoker could be prompted to pull out a cigarette driving in the car seeing a friend smoke feeling stressed out at work being on a horse watching a movie being drunk not being drunk that's crazy. So environmental design is powerful, not only because it influences how we engage with the world, but also because we rarely do it. Most people live in a world others have created for them. That's pretty interesting, man. I will admit that. So like if someone's deeply addicted to cigarettes, they are, but they're also cued. And if you mapped it out, probably like five different cues. So if you're trying to you know, stop this, like, yes, you need willpower, but like 
if you can make three of those cues almost impossible, like if you can, you know, put your cigarettes in the downstairs freezer, I mean, you gotta be a real fucking pervert to go downstairs 20 times, get in the freezer, and, you know, get a cigarette. We mentally assign our habits to the locations in which they occur. The home, the office, the gym, each location develops a connection to certain habits and routines. You establish a particular relationship with the objects on your desk, the items in the kitchen counter, the things in your bedroom. The good news, you can train yourself to link a particular habit with a particular context. And this next thing is fucking crazy. Uh, the power of context also reveals an important strategy. Habits can be easier to change in a new environment. It helps to escape the subtle triggers and cues that nudge you towards your current habits. Go to a new place, a different coffee shop, a bench in the park, a, a corner of the room that you seldom use. Create a new routine there. And dude, I had to consciously think about this. So 2020, my birthday, uh, March 13th, 2020, we um, went, our company went remote because of COVID. Okay. And, and I was like, this is crazy. And for like a few days, I worked from the home off. I worked from my kitchen table and I was like, this is not sustainable. This will not fucking work. So I said, wife, the guest room, it's mine. And it's my office now. I got a seated standing desk. I have a whiteboard. It's like, you know, and I close the door and I say, I'm going to work. And my wife says, goodbye. And then I feel fine. And it's totally fine. It's different structure. Like it doesn't even matter. But my good friend who, who formerly best friend now, then blood feud now cautiously good friend again, I guess. Um, but he had a little studio apartment and he just had a chair. And so he would sit in the chair and then it would be working time. And then he would sit in the chair and it'd be hanging out time. And what it turned into is he just had this long day that was half work, half bullshit, and total depression. The secret to self-control. So again, the real secret, discipline. But this is all good and helpful. And this is a crazy thing that I wouldn't have expected um, if you just know about drug addiction. In 1971, as the Vietnam War was headed into its 60th year, Congressman Robert Steele from whatever made a discovery that stunned the American public. So he visited Vietnam and learned that 15, over 15% of U.S. soldiers were heroin addicts. Follow-up research revealed that 35% of service members in Vietnam had tried heroin and as many as 20% were addicted. So bro let's say there's a million people okay that's 300,000 of them have tried heroin what that's insane and in 200,000 of them are actively addicted also dude imagine you're like Jocko and you're in the game and you're just trying to kill as much Viet Cong as you can and then you look over and your unit is just like shooting fucking heroin and you're like how the fuck I'm gonna get more kills than Danny if you guys are all on heroin but the punchline the craziest part is that when those soldiers returned home, only 5% of them became re-addicted within a year. So think about that. So 200,000 of a million are addicted to heroin in Vietnam. All that million people come back from the war and only 10,000 of the 200,000 who are addicted are still addicted. So 190,000 people of the 200,000 soldiers that in Vietnam, all 200,000 were addicted. When they come home, 
190,000 of them, they stop being addicted. Only 10,000 is still addicted, which is insane. Because what that tells you is that in Vietnam, you know, there's all these cues. You know, you're scared. You don't like it. You're, you know, it's the jungle. You know, you're getting bitten by bugs. Like, think of all the different cues that if you've got nothing to do, but you do have heroin, think of all the things that can become cues. Like, it's raining. It's not raining. We just worked a lot. I want to sleep. I don't want to sleep. Like, but then you come back to, I don't know, Akron, Ohio, and maybe the only time you ever feel like you're jonesing for heroin is on like the, on the Boy Scout camp out when you get bit by a couple mosquitoes and you're like, ah, back in Vietnam, we'd shoot up right now. And then like little Timmy and his best friends are seven and they're like, what shoot up mean? And then you're now no longer allowed to be the den leader. It's easier to practice self-restraint when you don't have to use it very often. Okay. So I think I've shared the story, but it's one of my favorites ever. Um, good buddy Jordy already uh, already talked about him on this podcast but he um I'm, I'm teaching him hunting and last year last season he came and I was like hey man be prepared like dress like it's going to be 10 degrees even if it's going to be 30 because you're not going to move and so like you're going to get cold as fuck and so he brought he brought clothes that were acceptable you know if you're going for like a walk and it's 20 degrees he would have been a little chilly now, it happened to be 10 degrees, and we were sitting for four hours. And so I am, you know, dude, I'm like fucking that I did a rod movie. I'm, you know, I'm like, I've got two scarfs on. I've got a you know neck gaiter. I've got like double pairs of socks. And, you know, I've got my, my hat on and everything. And, and so we go out, and it's, you know, we're sitting there, and I just see Jordy's back just, just fucking shaking. And I'm like, hey, man, hey, hey, how you doing? And he's like, he turns to me just wild fear in his eyes and he's just like oh, i'm fucking cold as shit man and so then we go in later but but like how to think about being warm and hunting is eventually you're gonna get cold okay like if you just sit long enough you're gonna get cold and eventually you're gonna have to suffer and you're just gonna have to not be a fucking bitch about it but imagine if you're doing a four-hour hunt which is a long hunt and you start getting cold at three and a half hours in you're just kind of like, mm, I'm, I'm shivering a little bit. I'm just like a little bit cold. Now, imagine if you start getting cold <laughs> like Jordy did. Oh, because he also saw a deer. And within, I don't know, minute 10, he took his gloves off and, <laughs> and had his gloves off for like 30 minutes. And then he tries to put his fucking gloves back on. And dude, it was so funny because I've been there so bad before too. And, and so I was just telling him like, hey, man we're going to get a bunch more clothes we're going to get way warmer and then your only goal is to just delay the suffering as long as you can and so i think that is what um james is is talking about okay he, like yes you have to use fucking discipline but if you can if you can engineer your environment you can think about the cues you can talk about the time and location you can stack the habits um you know you can change the environment like you might not like everybody has a, a well of discipline and, and you know maybe it refills faster for certain people but if you have a thousand units of, of discipline you can use per day and you know this this task might end up pushing you to the level where you're redlining that but if you've already been cold as shit for three hours i don't know man you might not be able to you might not be able to pull it off so yes don't be a pussy is correct 
However, I'm buying it, man. I'm in. I agree. Good point. So that is the first law. The first law of habit formation is just make it obvious. Okay. And that relates to the cue. Now, so we know the cue happens, then there's the craving. And the craving could be for something bad, or there is still this craving for something, and you can you can do a good habit. Okay, so the second law is make it attractive. Okay, this is the, you know, you have really nice, awesome running clothes where you look fucking awesome in them, and then you're more likely to do it. And so, second law, make it attractive. Uh, in the 1940s, there's some guy named Nico, and he was studying birds, herring gulls. Um, and adult herring gulls have a small red dot on their beak. And this fella noticed that chicks, so little babies, they would peck that red dot when they wanted food. And so they peck the dot. The parents were like, cool, this is great. He did an experiment where the parents flew away. He went over the nest and he offered these chicks some fake beaks. And so, you know, like, hey, this is my, oh, it's my parents' head. But it's not. It's a fake beak. The beaks were obvious fakes, and he assumed the baby birds would reject them altogether. However, when the tiny gulls saw the red spot on the cardboard beak, they pecked away as if it were attached to their own mother. They had a clear preference for those red spots, as if they had been programmed genetically by birth. And the crazy thing is, he put three red dots on the beak, and he got a stronger response. And so uh, what that's saying is that like, dude, some of this is, I mean, we are, we're just cats, sir. That's, that's right. And so like, don't fight it, accept it and figure out how to use it. Humans, we're in the same thing. We're prone to fall for exaggerated versions of reality. Think of junk food. Okay. Like think of having a four loco and a chicken bacon ranch pizza all to yourself. Think about the reward system that's getting fired with that. Now compare that to even a glass of wine and um, you know lean meats and vegetables. Like the reward is still pretty good for the lean meats and vegetables in the glass of wine, but like four loco and fucking chicken bacon ranch is it's the three dots on the beak. With natural unprocessed foods, you tend to experience the same sensations over and over. How's that 17th bite of kale taste? After a few minutes, your brain loses interest and you begin to feel full. But foods that are, high, that are high in dynamic contrast keep the experience novel and interesting, encouraging you to eat more. And so think of a Butterfinger, okay? I actually don't even like Butterfingers anymore because I did this cheat, uh, this diet where it had a cheat day and it was like eat whatever you want, and they said you can have a, a you know, you can have a barrel of beer if you want. I'm like, wow, fucking barrel, that's a lot. I was like, I love Butterfingers, so like, I was like, I went to Costco and I got the, I think it's it was a 24 pack or 32 pack. It was more than 12, and I ate all 24 in my cheat day. And but think about like, if I was trying to do that with vegetables, there'd be a point where I'm like, I would rather do anything than eat any more vegetables and to the point that i might even be like gagging or almost throwing up whereas butterfingers it was so crunchy and savory and like boom one butterfinger down the hatch delicious but like the seventh butterfinger was still pretty fucking good and so he's saying that like we got to think about some of this because the second law is we got to make 
habits attractive. And so like there's certain things that are already attractive out there. And so you got to be aware of them and maybe you can even use that for your own benefit. But first, we have to understand the biological signature that all habits share, the dopamine spike. So I ain't no man of science, but when you do a habit, you know, you take a drink, you get a dopamine spike. Researchers blocked the release of dopamine to rats. And crazy thing is that they didn't want to eat, didn't want to do no fucking, they didn't want to drink water, and they all just died of thirst in a few days. <laughs> and so uh, flipped it around though, they, they also tested the rats where every time the rats poked their head into um, like a little a little box, they would give the rats a hit of dopamine. And so uh, the craving to stick their head through the box occurred where some of the rats were doing it 800 times per hour, you know, but he brings up a crazy point. Humans are not so different. The average slot machine player will spin the wheel 600 times in an hour. So dude, what a good fucking analogy. Those slot machine players are legitimately just the rats just putting their heads through the fucking box. Habits are a dopamine driven feedback loop. Every behavior that is highly habit-forming, taking drugs, eating junk food, playing video games, browsing social media, is associated with higher levels of dopamine. When it comes to habits, the key takeaway is dopamine, dopamine is released not only when you experience pleasure, but also when you anticipate it. So gambling addicts, they get a, they get a spike of dopamine right before they place a bet not after they win, but they also get it there too. So, so what he's saying is that like the way that these habits are working and, and if we're really gonna try to engineer our habits, we you know kind of need to be thinking about this and understanding the underlying effects of the habits where if I'm a gambling addict, so, you know, I have the cue of, oh man, I'm, I'm you know, I've got this fucking, you know, slot machine noises, uh, which I'm sure are loud and bright lights and everything, which is just like use, use hammering our, our, our system. But then even anticipation will spike dopamine. So I'm like, oh, I got this cue. I'm in this environment. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to place a bet. And then I'm like, what? Are, oh, I'm feeling lucky. 10 bucks. Boom. Anticipation. Dopamine goes up. Now I pull the slot machine. And now if I win, it's like poof, massive fucking dopamine. And so... Um, you know, you can see how it's this, all of a sudden you're now in this loop of reinforcement. You got this perpetual motion machine and then you wake up and you're like, dude, I did, I did 12 hours on the slot machine yesterday. What the fuck is happening? So when we're thinking about making it attractive, we need to understand, you know, that, that attractive could even potentially be somewhat chemical, but then also there's, there's a lot of social norms that are attached to this. Like, you know, part of the reason that it was hard for me to shoot, shoot bows seven times a week is like, that's just kind of crazy. Like, what? I think I'm fucking Pocahontas over here. Um, and so, like, I had to maybe discard uh, society's social norms and create my own. In 1965, a Hungarian man named Laszlo wrote a series of strange letters to a woman named Clara. Laszlo was a firm believer in hard work. In fact, it was all he believed in. He completely rejected the idea of innate talent. He claimed that with deliberate practice and the development of good habits, a child could become a genius in any field. His mantra was, a genius is not born, but is educated and trained. Laszlo believed in this idea so strongly that he wanted to test it with his own children. And he was writing Clara, uh, 
because he needed a wife willing to jump on board. So imagine, he's like, hey, I would like you to birth us some test subjects, please. And Clara was like, say that again, daddy. And I thought that I was a fanatic about deliberate practice, dude. Hilarious. I almost want to like go read this guy's stuff. That's so fucking hilarious. Um, so, but she, he's, she's like, hell yeah, say it again. They had three kids. All three kids became chess prodigies. The childhood of the Polgar sisters was atypical to say the least. And yet, if you ask them about it, they claim their lifestyle was attractive, even enjoyable. In interviews, the sisters talked about their childhood as entertaining rather than grueling. They loved playing chess. They couldn't get enough of it. Once, Laszlo reportedly found one of the sisters playing chess in the bathroom in the middle of the night, encouraging her to go back to sleep. He said, Sophia, leave the pieces alone. To which she replied, Daddy, they won't leave me alone. And he's sharing all that because there's this seductive pull of social norms. You know, if all your friends are doing something or, you know, you want to be cool or, you know, you feel like what you're doing is crazy or, you know, like you get that thought of like, wow, why can't you just, you know, let's say your your wife's like, man, you know, you, like you get obsessed with working out and she's like, can't you just live a little? And you're like, oh. and so as we're, you know, first thing, we're going to make the cue obvious, but then, you know, the craving, you've got to make it attractive. And so sometimes there's these things that are against us. We're like, I don't feel like I want to shoot my bow because that's a crazy thing to shoot at set every day, every day. Humans are similar. There's tremendous internal pressure to comply with the norms of the group. The reward of being accepted is often greater than the reward of winning an argument, looking smart, or finding truth. Most days, we'd, we'd rather be wrong in the crowd than be right by ourselves. And there's, a, there's an investing phrase that's like that says, it's warm in the herd. Meaning, investing's acknowledge the fact that it's a, it's a way of thinking where you have to just be probability based and, and you know like open to the best way. And so sometimes the best investors, they don't go with the herd because they're like, yeah, it's warm in the herd. You know, I'm over here because you guys are all fucking wrong. You're just huddling together. The Polgar sisters um, are evidence of the powerful and lasting impact social influences can have on our behavior. The sisters practiced chess for many hours each day and continued this remarkable effort for decades. But these habits and behaviors maintain their attractiveness, in part because they were valued by their culture. From the praise of their parents to the achievement of diff different status markers like becoming a grandmaster, they had many reasons to continue their effort. And so, you know, he's basically saying like, you got to engineer your environment a little bit where like, sometimes you got to say, hey, you know what? Like if you're an MMA, like a professional MMA fighter, you have to be, you have to have mastery in wrestling, jujitsu, boxing, and kicking and insane cardio and decent strength. To really give that like the focus it needs, probably have to train two to three times a day. And some of those trainings are really light and it's almost skill work. But, you know, if you if you, you know are like looking at the average person and then you're training four times a day, like you're so goddamn atypical. And so he's saying if, if you're if you're trying to engineer this environment, you might have to even discard well-loved social norms. So let's talk about where cravings come from. So you have the cue. And then you get the craving and the craving is where we're trying to make it attractive. So we're having the craving for good things like, oh yeah, you know, metal Thursdays, I need to bash my shins. 
Every behavior has a surface level craving and a deeper underlying motive. If my craving is I want to eat burgers, I wouldn't say, okay, well, it's because I need food to survive. But the truth is that somewhere deep down, I'm motivated to eat burgers because I want to survive. The underlying motive is to obtain food and water, even if my specific craving is for a burger. Some of the underlying motives include energy, uh, conserving energy, obtaining food and water, finding love and reproducing, connecting and bonding with others, winning social acceptance, achieving status, etc. And so, so he's saying is like, ultimately, we have to get down to the root of like, why do we even want some of this stuff? And, you know, it's like you have this craving to drink a beer. Okay, but that's like the, that's the highest level. The, you know, it's probably like, maybe it's two things. One is you have anxiety. You've learned that a beer makes the anxiety go away. The other is like your friends go there. And so, you know, at its root, that, that craving currently having a beer is very attractive. It's be accepted and fulfilled by friendship and feel better. Like, no wonder he's gumming down some fucking beers. But here's the point. There are many different ways to address the same underlying motive. One person might learn to reduce stress by smoking a cigarette. Another, by going for a run. Your current habits are not necessarily the best way to solve the problems you face. They are just the methods you have learned to use. Once you associate a solution with the problem you need to solve, you keep coming back. You see a cue. You categorize it based on past experience and determine an appropriate response. Our behavior is heavily dependent on these predictions. So put another way, our behavior is heavily dependent on how we interpret the events that happen to us, not necessarily the objective reality of the events themselves. So there's, you know, there's things happening to us that are cueing us. And then how we interpret that through the lens of your brain's drugs, uh, dopamine, uh, like, ooh, slot machine, ooh, craving, ooh, definitely want to gamble. Or even like social norms of like how often should I be doing this or like, man, is it is it acceptable to go home when you're on a business dinner and not have any alcohol? Oh, I don't know. And then even you got to acknowledge that at the basic level, some of these cues are coming, you know, these cravings are coming from like deep human motivations of like reducing fear. And so, you know, if you just say like, hey, I think I want to read more, but you don't you don't think about some of this, you know, it's, it's like you might not be using all of the technology that is at your disposal to stack the odds in your favor. To summarize, the specific cravings you feel and habits you perform are really an attempt to address your fundamental underlying motives. Whenever a habit successfully addresses a motive, you develop the craving to do it again. And so with all of that, that's really good stuff, but that's great. It makes total sense for beer. But what about like running? I hate running. How to reprogram your brain to enjoy hard habits. You can make hard habits more attractive if you can learn to associate them with a positive experience. Sometimes all you need is a slight mindset shift. Okay. So I'm just going to give you mine, uh, both for working out and saving money. He goes through other examples, but just know he agrees with me. Okay. So working out, I'm not like trying to go work out. Um, it's, it's more like I think so much about, man, imagine how fucking awesome it would be if I was so goddamn jacked. And that's like the thing gets me to work out. And when I am working out, when it sucks the most, when it's absolutely terrible, like I put in my notes today, like 
pure fucking unadulterated torture uh, when I, as I was doing these sets of um you know tricep extensions and like oh, dude and i was like keeping perfect form and i was at like 13 and i was gonna do 18 and you know like 16 and 17 and 18 were just snake venom in my arms and when that pain comes i feel in my mind like vegeta training in the high gravity chamber trying to beat kakarot more more like like that tom platt's like kill me like i'm the prince of sands he cannot be stronger than me and so like if you think about that the the activities are meaningless because it's so like like man my arms hurt so fucking bad imagine how jacked i'm gonna be it's not like my arms hurt so bad it's like my arms hurt so bad imagine how fucking jacked i'm gonna be or it's the same thing when uh saving money you know you're not sacrificing anything like i imagine how smog would feel adding more gold to his pile of treasure it's like more gold yes yes and like get it like you want to get as much pleasure from just ripping an unreasonable amount of your monthly income into investments just like yes more like, <laughs> like that's the that's the way that when you think about hard habits it's like doesn't even like you're not saving money you're becoming a dragon like those are those are way different man and all that is cool and whatever but gotta keep in mind this is me jumping in sometimes you're just gonna have to force your fucking corpse but if you can, if you can make the good habits attractive and the bad habits unattractive, that'll help. And with that, this yarn winds down and we have one more. We're deep in the elephant graveyard, but we might have just found some meat. If you want to learn about the third law, make it easy. And the fourth law, make it satisfying. And then walk into some advanced tactics. We got one more episode. I promise it'll be worth it. Anything you ever could imagine could be heard. If you can just tune in on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.